So this morning, we're going to talk about comforting the afflicted. If we're going to talk about comforting others, we first must talk about suffering. This is a poet by Somali British poet. His name is Warsan Shire. And his words remind me of the immensity of suffering in the wider world. Later that night, I held an atlas in my lap, ran my fingers over the world, the whole world, and whispered, where does it hurt? It answered, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. If we made this congregation this morning a trust circle, a giant trust circle, which is something that Parker Palmer, an educator and author, speaks about, a trust circle is someplace where you can go and talk of your suffering without someone judging you or trying to fix you. And what that trust circle does is shows the universality of suffering. And if we did that in this group, the universality of our suffering would be intimately apparent to all of us. If I were to ask who has experienced suffering, the spoken or unspoken answer would be everyone, everyone, everyone. So suffering or affliction, that's the old-fashioned biblical term for suffering, is out there, it's among us, and it's inside of us. In my first clinical training unit as a student chaplain, I served for three months as a trauma chaplain in a level one trauma center. One night after I returned from a call to the new replacement hospital where the on-call chaplain slept, I was returning to the hospital and it was across the street from the old hospital where the long-term care unit was housed. And I had been called that night to be with an elderly woman whose worries and the demons um, that troubled her, her suffering, came to visit her in the wee hours of the night. I looked up at those multiple towers of this big medical center, and I was overwhelmed by thinking, these are towers of suffering. And when I thought that, I knew that part of my challenge as a student chaplain was to get a grip on my relationship with suffering so that it did not immobilize me and so that I could become an agent of comfort and empowerment to those whom I ministered to. When I spent most of my time focusing on the immensity of suffering, and it's easy to do, it's in our faces all the time. When I looked at the immensity of suffering in my individual patients' lives, the, the capriciousness of that suffering, and I raged against it, that it wasn't fair, why should one family have so much pain? That wasn't very helpful. What helped me most was to accept that suffering exists. That's the first noble truth of Buddhism. Suffering is. By accepting this or making peace, I didn't mean I liked it, that it doesn't cause me great pain to have my own or to witness it in others, 
but if I could accept the reality of that, it freed up my energies to move on to empowering patients so that they could identify their unique causes of suffering and what the remedies were that they knew about or their families knew about for them. I'm a hematology oncology chaplain um, at the Mayo Clinic Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. Prior to that, I was a nurse practitioner in another lifetime working with kids and adolescents. So as you can tell, many of the patients that I work with have life-threatening uh, cancers. My patients have a way of putting suffering in its place, however, that I really, really get energized by. And they do it so that they can free up their energies to diminish their suffering, to survive very difficult treatment processes, and even to find spiritual transformation in the midst of it. This is what they say. It is what it is. You've all heard that, right? It's ubiquitous in the culture. But when my patients say that, it has a powerful punch. For what most of them are saying when they use that short phrase, it's shorthand for, yes, this is what happened. This is what is. And in that acceptance, my heart is opening, and in that opening, there is release and a freeing of their energies, not to rail against the suffering, but to find a way through it. That release allows them to use their precious finite energy to fight their disease, to guard their spirits from despair, and to choose to stand on the side of hope and healing. So that's a very broad brushstroke of affliction or suffering which is one part of the dialectic that we're, we're talking about and exploring this morning. Comfort's the other half of that dialectic. Comfort is seen as a balm to affliction. It's often seen as the remedy for things that cause us to suffer. But the holy work of comforting can be very tricky. As one person said, it's easier to know what not to say to someone who is suffering than what to say in the midst of their pain. It is comforting um, if you comfort, if you comfort from a deep sense of empathy and self-understanding, then if you do it with that, then you won't infantilize that patient or person, you won't disempower them, you won't stick them in a victim category, in a victim mode, you'll see that they still have strengths despite the pain, despite the suffering. Even worse, if you don't use empathy and deep self-understanding, you can say things that will be like rubbing salt in wounds. And we are all encouraged in culture, whenever there's training of people that are going to minister to people, lay ministers, professional ministers, we're encouraged not to be Job's comforters. Now, the story of Job is from the Hebrew uh, Christian scriptures, and it's a story of a man who loses everything. He is painfully afflicted by horrible diseases, and he wrestles mightily with God over all of his affliction. His friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who come to comfort Job in his affliction, score very poorly on the empathy and empowerment meter. 
Their big mistake as comforters was in trying to explain the cause of Job's suffering, defending God, and blaming Job for his afflictions. They had their own theological agendas, they had little empathy, and they caused great suffering, additional suffering to a man who was already near unto dead with suffering. Sometimes the afflicted have to defend themselves against the so-called comforters in their lives, and you probably all know stories and are, or may have experienced that. Job certainly did. And these are his words telling his comforters that what they did to him caused him more suffering. So from Job 16, he says, I have heard many such things, miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I could also speak as you do, as if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. According to Rabbi Harold Kushner, this is what he says. The phrase Job's comforters has come into our language, and it describes people who mean to help, but who are more concerned with their own needs or feelings than they are with the other person. And so they end up making things worse. Kushner wisely goes on to, to counsel us. He says, under the impact of his multiple tragedies, Job was desperately trying to hold on to his self-respect, his sense of himself as a good person. The last thing in the world that he needed was to be told what he was doing was wrong. Or whether the criticisms were about the way he was grieving or what he had done to de deserve such a fate, their effect was that of rubbing salt in the wounds. Job needed sympathy more than he needed advice. He needed compassion, the sense that others felt his pain with him more than he needed learned theological explanations about God's ways. He needed spiritual comforting, people sharing their strength with him, holding him rather than scolding him. Holding him rather than scolding him. Over the 13 years that I've served as a chaplain, I have grown to have empathy even for Job's comforters. They started off on the right foot. They formed a community of friends which the book of Job tells us, this is what the book of Job says, they got together, those three guys, they were going to go and console and comfort Job. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word, for they say that his suffering was very great. When tragedy strikes, when someone is profoundly suffering, our anxiety can go sky high and we can come into contact, when we come into contact with that much pain. And when we're anxious, we don't tend to think clearly. And if we speak too soon, we can say really stupid things, such as empty platitudes. Or even worse, we might probe for details of that person's suffering to which we have no right to that information. But if we clear a holy space from which to act, if we pause to remember our anxiety, take several deep breaths, and then offer our best intention 
to do no harm when we do speak and offer help. That clears the space. Perhaps Job's comforters got impatient, or they were overwhelmed with his suffering, with being in the presence of that for seven days and seven nights, and they wanted Job to just move on, get over it. The trouble began when they opened their mouths. They provided one of the most classic examples of what not to say to someone who is suffering. Now, as a chaplain, you could say I'm, in some senses, a professional comforter. Truth be told, I don't always get it right. So I do not have all the answers for you about what is life-giving comfort, owing to my humanity and also to the fact that if you're going to give comforting that is really meaningful and empowers that person, lets them know that you're with them, you have to have exquisite attunement to what they're saying and what they're feeling. And sometimes I fail at that exquisite attunement. When we ask, where does it hurt, we must stop and really listen to what the person is saying. When we say, how can I help, listen to what they can say. And sometimes they don't know, but listen. We must try to refrain from sharing our own experiences that we may have had or we know someone else has. We call that telling war stories. So if someone and I have pancreatic cancer, oh yes, my uncle had pancreatic cancer. He died two days after he was diagnosed. That adds suffering to the patient because you're cluttering up their story with other stories, either yours or someone else's, and you're not truly hearing how their story is. Because the impact of the identical circumstances can be different, as different as your handprint from one person to the next. So with that caveat about all of my imperfections of a comforter disclosed, I do have some insights that I thought might be life-giving comforting. And I've gleaned these from some of my best teachers, and those are my patients, the families I work with, and the staff that I minister to. First of all, less is more. Two of my friends, Mike and Joe, had a good friend, had good friends that lost their young adult daughter to cancer. And I saw them shortly after um, she had died, and they came to me with this heartbroken look in their eyes saying, Kathy, what do we say to the parents? And I said, you say, less is more, don't use a lot of words. Come at it from a heart of love of a parent and say, my heart is breaking with yours. Listen, listen, listen. That speaks for itself. Let yourself feel their pain, but remember it's theirs. It's not yours. If you become overwhelmed and out of control of your emotions, then they have to take care of you rather than themselves. Know that you will be afflicted if you comfort the afflicted. And so you have to find ways to tend your heart, to renew your spirit that will be broken open when you truly let others' suffering touch you. Remember the caregivers. They need comforting, and they are part of the afflicted in any situation where someone is ill, so the families. And caregivers are a powerful example of the silent suffering. 
They're often seen as invisible. They do things that you can't imagine, keeping a person alive, um, and yet they don't necessarily get the support that they need. Comfort is not always about words. It can be acts. So get practical when you say, I'd like to help. Do you need me to go grocery shopping? Do you need pet care? Can I give extended respite care to the caregiver? Can I come over and spell you? Can you teach me what I need to do with this person? Um, house cleaning, massaging feet. That's a good example from Parker Palmer. He said that he had a lot of Job's comforters when he was deeply depressed. And the one person that ministered most, most effectively to him was a man that would come over, said very little, would from day to day kind of reflect what he saw in Parker's face and what he said. Very brief comments, but he gave him a foot massage every single day. And that helping Parker keep in touch with his physical body when everything felt like it was flying apart helped him get over his depression. Remember just that, that just as suffering is unique to each person, so too are their experiences um, of comforting, what they find comforting. So when I, read, when I read that, our reading this morning, I was appalled. The mother cut the blanket up. How could she do that? Had she no empathy? But as you see in the end of the story, it didn't matter to Marcy. She was still comforted by that little scrap of blankie that she had left. So just as our comfort foods will vary from person to person, know that what comforts a person will be different from what it might be for you. And finally, pay attention to your timing of comfort. Sometimes the greatest comfort is allowing the person who's been afflicted time, space, and solitude. Often when horrible news is received, they can't process anything. And so think about the timing of your offers for help. And you ask yourself this question, is this that I'm trying to offer this person in such pain, is this something that the person really needs now or the family needs now, or is this something that I'm doing for me to assuage my sense of helplessness in the face of it? Knowing how to comfort the afflicted of the larger world is probably the most complex. And as we are in, inundated by the reality of how harsh and brutal our world is, um, we can lose hope. The words that I wanted to share with you that do remind us that despair is the great deception are from Howard Thurman. And he is an African-American theologian. Um, he was contemporary with Martin Luther um, King Sr and he was the spiritual advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. This is what he says about despair and hope. During these turbulent times, we must remind ourselves repeatedly that life goes on. The mass attack of disillusion and despair distilled out of the collapse of hope has so invaded our thoughts that we know, what we know to be true and valid seems unreal and ephemeral. This is the great deception. Let us not be deceived. It is just as important as ever to attend to the little graces by which the dignity of our lives is maintained and sustained. Birds still sing. The stars continue to cast their gentle gleam. 
and the heart is still inspired by the kind word and the gracious deed. To drink in the beauty that is within reach, to clothe one's life with simple deeds of kindness, to keep alive a sensitiveness by the movement, to the movement of the spirit, in the quietness of the human heart, in the working of the human mind, that is always the ultimate answer to the great deception. Comforting the afflicted is sacred, holy ministry. And it takes a healthy, loving faith community to do that ministry well. And Karen Solvig Anderson spoke of that in the reading. And the last piece of that reading where she is equating faith communities that do their work well of caring for and comforting the afflicted, she said that they are quilters, piecing one life to another, binders, quilters, we. May we continue to piece and bind a quilt of wholeness and healing for the whole wide world, so that when the question is asked, where are the afflicted comforted, we can answer, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. May it be so.